0: The following presentation is brought to you by The Realm Network. Buzz Burbank. News and comment. The watchword of the week is scandalous. This is Thursday, March 8th, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors, including Hello Pillow and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. It's been two years since Russia launched its cyber and propaganda attack against the United States. Trump's State Department was given $120 million to combat Russian meddling. It has so far spent none of that money. It was also offered $80 million to combat both ISIS and Russian propaganda, and Trump's State Department turned down that money. The New York Times reports that of the nearly two dozen analysts assigned to fight propaganda at the State Department, none of them speak Russian. And they can't hire anybody who does, because there's a hiring freeze at the State Department on orders from Trump's Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. The freeze also means the department cannot hire the computer experts it would need to even monitor what Russia is up to. Meanwhile, Russian bots are still spreading disinformation in the months before a crucial congressional election. The State Department under Trump and Tillerson has done nothing to try to stem or stop Russia's successful assault on the U.S., Tillerson has said he's not even sure if there's anything we could do. It was already established that even the hands of U.S. intelligence are tied by the lack of any orders from the president to stop the Russian threat or retaliate against it. Instead, Trump has mocked the Russia thing and those investigating it. He's even fired and forced out some of them. Many state election boards have beefed up their computer security, but the Russians seem less interested now in getting into the ballot box as they are getting into our heads. Their inflammatory posts serve to further divide Americans. It has worked, and it is still working. And Vladimir Putin knows it's working, which is why it continues today, especially with a U.S. president who seems to have no interest in defending the nation against it. It is the first duty of a president to protect the republic. This president has been derelict in that duty. The question lingers. Do the Russians have something on Trump that prevents him from doing that job? Vladimir Putin's had it in for the U.S. State Department ever since Secretary of State Hillary Clinton accused him of rigging his re-election in 2011. And there is now a source who says there was high-fiving in Moscow when Trump chose Rex Tillerson as Trump's Secretary of State over Trump's first choice, Mitt Romney. Romney had been hard on Russia in his 2012 presidential campaign. Tillerson, on the other hand, had been awarded the Russian Medal of Friendship by Vladimir Putin for scoring a major oil deal between Exxon and the Russian oil company Rosneft. And through some amazing reporting by the New Yorker's Jane Mayer, we now know of a memo we didn't know about before. Quoting Mayer's article, the memo said that the Kremlin, through unspecified channels, had asked Trump to appoint someone who would be prepared to lift Ukraine-related sanctions and who would cooperate on security issues of interest to Russia. What memo? Thanks to Mayer's reporting, we now know there was a second, previously unknown memo from Christopher Steele, an addendum to the Steele dossier that preceded it. In that second memo, written after the election, Steele cited a reliable Russian source about the happiness in the Kremlin when Trump picked Tillerson over Romney. With Clinton out of the way in the months that have followed, Trump and Tillerson have effectively gutted the State Department that Vladimir Putin hates so much. But that's not all Jane Mayer picked up in her reporting. She found that Christopher Steele had been watching Russia's interference in European politics already when he was approached by American research firm Fusion GPS to also look into U.S. interference by Russia. We also learned from Mayer's New Yorker story that Steele didn't know for months that his work was being funded by Democratic supporters. Remarkably, Mayer also reports that the Democrats and Hillary Clinton were never informed that Steele and Fusion GPS had taken what they had found to the FBI. The Clinton campaign didn't know about the FBI investigation into Trump and Russia and never got the specifics of Steele's findings. One former Clinton campaign official says, quote, if I'd known the FBI was investigating Trump, I would have been shouting it from the rooftops. We also learned from this groundbreaking article that Mueller is also looking into a second death in connection with the publication of the Steele dossier. Both of the dead men appear to have been among the sources used by former British spy Christopher Steele, and now a former Russian spy linked to the research firm that hired Steele has been poisoned with a nerve agent, as has his daughter. They were both in critical condition at last report. The police officer who found them and was also exposed to the nerve agent is in intensive care. The 66-year-old former double agent and his 33-year-old daughter, were found unconscious on a bench at a shopping mall in the town of Salisbury, about 90 miles west of London. British counterterrorism is investigating. According to a neighbor, he seemed like a nice chap. When he moved in, he invited us all over for a housewarming party, the whole street. As this week began, we learned special counsel Robert Mueller isn't afraid to subpoena the president. And although Mueller hasn't yet subpoenaed Trump himself, he has subpoenaed documents from Trump and nine other people, including members of Trump's inner circle. But Mueller's demanding emails, text messages, work papers, phone logs, and more. Among those subpoenaed with Trump, Steve Bannon, Rick Gates, Hope Hicks, Corey Lewandowski, Paul Manafort, Carter Page, Roger Stone, lawyer Michael Cohen, and former bodyguard Keith Schiller. Involving the president in this subpoena appears to mean Mueller is now asking what the president knew and when he knew about the hacking and the leaking of Democratic emails in 2016. Mueller appears to be pursuing that question from all angles. NBC News reports that Mueller's building a case to file more criminal charges against Russians, namely the specific Russians who allegedly stole those Democratic emails and leaked them to the world There's even a chance he could indict Vladimir Putin, since there's evidence of Putin's involvement. Mueller got a lot of help with this from the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, and Homeland Security. He got that same help when he recently charged other Russians for the social media attacks. Both the hacking and cyber attacks started at about the same time. The U.S. isn't likely to apprehend any of the Russians on these new charges, but their travel is now restricted and it's a message to Russia and both prongs of the Russian attack have been now established as crimes. Identifying the crimes allows prosecutors to indict any co-conspirators for those crimes. The filing of this apparent new indictment could be weeks or months away, but we just learned about the Trump document subpoena and that was issued a month ago. To say Mueller's probe has expanded is an understatement. He's now reportedly focused on the United Arab Emirates and how it may have influenced Trump administration policy. The alleged go-between is businessman George Nader, who's an advisor to the leader of the UAE government and has made frequent visits to Trump's White House. And Nader has now become a cooperative witness for the special counsel because Mueller appears to have evidence Nader funneled UAE money into Trump's campaign. It is illegal for foreign entities to donate to U.S. election campaigns, just as it's illegal for a candidate to accept them. Mueller's assignment was to investigate the Russian attack and any connections between it and the Trump campaign. George Nader had set up a meeting in the Seychelles Islands between Russians, representatives of the United Arab Emirates, and a man kind of representing Trump. The Washington Post reports today that Robert Mueller is now investigating whether the purpose of that meeting was to establish a back channel of communication between the Trump administration and the Kremlin. I never aired the story that I wrote a year ago about that meeting because at the time no one knew what it meant. Now it makes sense. And now here it is. About a week after U.S. intelligence concluded that Russia had interfered with the election process that gave us Trump and about a week before Trump took the oath of office, there was a secret meeting in a remote part of the world near Madagascar. It's a tale of two princes, the crown prince of Abu Dhabi and the United Arab Emirates, and Eric Prince, the co-founder of Blackwater, a brother to Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, and a friend of former White House political strategist, Steve Bannon. The Prince, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al-Nayan, known understandably as Sheikh MBZ, was there, and Eric Prince was there, but also there were Russian officials who hoped to establish a back channel of communication with the new Trump administration. Prince, Eric, not the Sheikh, was hoping to get Russia to loosen its ties to Iran and Syria. The Russians were hoping to get the Trump administration to loosen the sanctions for their takeover of Crimea. Eric Prince told those attending that two-day secret meeting he was an unofficial emissary from the Trump campaign, but everyone there regarded him as a Trump emissary. That meeting has long been a focus of the FBI, and now Robert Mueller reportedly has evidence that a common goal in that meeting was to set up that secret communication between Washington and the Kremlin and he got that evidence from businessman George Nader, who arranged that meeting and who is now testifying for the Mueller grand jury. In December of 2016, the crown prince from Abu Dhabi flew to New York without notifying the U.S. government that a foreign dignitary was visiting the country, as usually happens. It's standard protocol, but this time the protocol was ignored. The prince was in New York to meet with Steve Bannon, Jared Kushner, and Mike Flynn. U.S. intelligence was watching, even though it hadn't been notified of this secret visit by the prince. And early last year, that same prince turned up in the White House, proudly displayed for the cameras by a beaming U.S. president. Jared Kushner may be the president's son-in-law, but Kushner is not the man he was a month ago. He no longer sees the president's daily brief. He no longer has security clearance. He is now the guy in charge of everything, in name only he is no longer considered the best way to get through to Trump as he negotiates with Mexico and a Middle East peace. Because of the Russia probe and Kushner's part in that story, other White House staffers now avoid him. Last week, we learned that at least four countries had concluded that because of Kushner's debts and business dealings, he was manipulable and that he may have been compromised by China. And NBC News now reports that the Mueller team and the FBI are looking into what effect, if any, Kushner's business deals had on White House policies, especially foreign policy concerning Russia, China, and the Middle East. Even Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal has called for Jared to leave the White House. A senior White House official says Kushner's looked pretty beaten up over the past week. A former senior Trump campaign advisor says he wouldn't blame Kushner if he, quote, just said the hell with it. Kushner and others have been cut out of the top secret loop because he couldn't qualify for a security clearance, as was the case with dozens of other White House staffers. The White House crackdown on security clearances intensified after word got out that former Trump Secretary Rob Porter, who was also without clearance, was dating his chief White House defender, Communications Director Hope Hicks. Neither had security clearance. Both are now gone. Can Jared be far behind? Trump was reportedly angry that the White House chief of staff hadn't done more to protect his son-in-law and, by default, his daughter, Ivanka. Trump has reason to worry about Ivanka. She may not be able to get security clearance either. CNN reports U.S. counterintelligence is investigating one of Ivanka's international business deals. The FBI has been looking into both the negotiations and the finances for the Trump International Hotel in Vancouver and Ivanka's party in both. We do not yet know if Ivanka's business deals might, as her husband's are, be of interest to the Mueller investigation. Does a Russian sex worker have proof of ties between Trump and Russia? She says she does, and that she'll share it if she's released from a jail cell in Thailand. Normally, this claim by escort Anastasia Vashakovich would never seem credible, but in an incredible era, anything now seems possible. Anastasia was arrested in a police raid on a sex training seminar she was holding in Thailand, but she believes Putin and one of his oligarchs are behind her arrest. In normal times, her offer would seem some kind of ploy to get out of jail. But Anastasia once had an affair with a name you may recognize, Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. Deripaska, you see, is the former employer of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and very much of interest to the Mueller probe. So when Anastasia Vashkevich reached out to U.S. intelligence via Instagram from inside her jail cell, it got counterintelligence agents' attention. Quoting her, I am the only witness and the missing link in the connection between Russia and the U.S. elections, the long chain, she wrote, of Oleg Deripaska, Manafort, and Trump. Anastasia says she'll talk if she's released from jail and granted political asylum. Her claims seem incredible but so was the Steele dossier until substantial parts of it were verified. And then there's the Stormy Daniels story, which has become less about sex and more about money. Federal regulators have been looking into the $130,000 in hush money paid to Ms. Daniels by Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen. The bank that handled that transaction didn't flag the transaction as suspicious at the time, but 11 months later, it now has because apparently it's been asked about the payment by federal law enforcement. The source of the money, the reason for it, and the timing of it would all be of interest to anyone investigating whether it amounted to an illegal, unreported campaign donation. But maybe Trump lawyer Michael Cohen didn't think of it as a donation. Maybe he thought of it as a short-term interest-free loan. Cohen says he made the payment himself because in the final days before the election, Ms. Daniels still hadn't gotten her money and was ready to talk about her alleged affair with Trump while Trump's wife Melania cared for their newborn child. Lawyers call it a nondisclosure agreement when at least one of the two parties, sometimes both, are required to stay quiet about one thing or another. In Ms. Daniels' case, it was about what she says was an intimate relationship between her and the man who is now the President of the United States. Cohen says Trump was so busy in those final days he couldn't reach his client, so he just paid Daniels on his own. Apparently he wishes he hadn't. In new reporting from the Wall Street Journal, Cohen is said to have complained to friends about never getting reimbursed for the money he'd fronted. Reimbursed by whom? Fronted for whom? This so-called non-disclosure agreement was between a porn star called Stormy and a presidential candidate called Trump. Just one catch, however. Trump himself never signed that confidentiality agreement. His lawyer, Michael Cohen, did. The porn star signed. She signed in her stage name, another alias she has used, and her real name, but nothing from Trump. In a side letter, she signed as the agreed to Peggy Peterson, but the signature line for Trump's David Dennison is blank. Cohen signed the main agreement as Trump's representative. That, says the porn star's lawyer, makes the confidentiality agreement null and void and Stormy and her lawyer are now suing Trump to try to get a court to officially declare that contract null and void. They may or may not have a case against Trump and Cohen. The fact that she accepted the money will weigh against her. But if the court agrees, her lawyer says Stormy is eager to talk while investigators follow the money. Daniels reportedly also has text messages and photos. What prompted her sudden lawsuit? It turns out Trump's lawyer, Michael Cohen, had secretly gotten a temporary restraining order to keep her from talking. Therefore, she's claiming that Cohen also violated the terms of the agreement. The porn star and her lawyer want their case to be heard in open court. This is getting ugly. Stay tuned. The whole sordid affair has been witnessed, of course, by special counsel Robert Mueller, who's looking into the many activities of Trump lawyer Michael Cohen. Mueller's requested and gotten a lot of documents and a number of witnesses about Cohen's full-service jack-of-all-trades relationship with his client. Cohen's naturally been involved in a number of Trump business deals and even Trump's political career. Whether Cohen is or isn't a target for Mueller, those business deals are, and Cohen was in on the action. During the campaign, Cohen was busy trying to get a Trump Tower built in, where else? Moscow. Just a week after Trump took office, Cohen met with a Putin-backed Ukrainian lawmaker to receive delivery of a Ukrainian peace plan. Cohen says he never delivered that Russian-backed plan to Trump, throwing it in the trash instead, he says. When do lawyers throw things in the trash instead of shredding them? Cohen has also met with Russian-born real estate investor Felix Sater, who's dabbled in espionage after doing a little jail time for stabbing a guy in the face with the broken stem of a martini glass. Sater also once worked for Trump. So, attorney Michael Cohen knows things, things that interest Bob Mueller. Cohen is also on the list of people getting Mueller's subpoenas for documents and emails, emails that include the ones to and from Stormy Daniels' lawyer, we presume. And Trump's also got to be worried about himself. It would appear that he is, judging from an increase in his erratic and distracting behavior and from what we're hearing inside the White House. Trump has got to be worried about the people going down around him, his inner circle sort of crumbling, but he's got to be especially worried about himself, and it appears he is. The New York Times reports today that Trump's been asking people who've been interviewed by the Mueller team about those encounters, how it went, and what they'd been asked. Now, this doesn't qualify as witness tampering, but he's been doing it against the advice of his own lawyers not to even give the appearance of interfering. This, according to three New York Times sources who are in a position to know. Trump reportedly asked former Chief of Staff Reince Priebus how it went and whether the investigators were nice. Trump may be thinking about his own upcoming interview. The fact that Trump is asking these questions shows how much it's on his mind, and it shows what prosecutors call consciousness of guilt. It's another brick in the building of an obstruction of justice case. Trump reportedly wanted White House counsel Don McGahn to issue a statement denying newspaper reports that he'd told investigators Trump had sent him to get Mueller fired. McGahn refused to do that, reminded Trump he had given him that assignment. And now Mueller knows about all of this. Mueller is closing in. The pressure on Trump and the people from the Russia investigation has taken its toll. One source calling it pure madness. Plagued by scandals in multiple executive branch departments, Trump has reportedly been lashing out behind the scenes and making decisions that lead to chaos. A White House source told NBC that Trump had come unglued. In the past week, Trump has flip-flopped on gun policy. Without telling his staff, he announced a trade tariff with massive negative consequences. Even if those tariffs never happen, Trump's comments punched in the gut, both Wall Street and our allies. Wall Street can recover. International relations are trickier. Our ambassador to Mexico found that out the hard way. She has resigned now, after a testy phone call two weeks ago between Trump and Mexico's President Nieto. A close advisor and his secretary were forced out, and his son-in-law has been shut out. Trump was said to be increasingly isolated and spiraling. He has again attacked Attorney General Jeff Sessions, rife with misspellings, his tweets about Alec Baldwin at 5.42 a.m. after Russia brags about nuclear weapons. Trump's tweet slamming the actor also came less than an hour after an Alec Baldwin interview had aired on Fox News. So we know the president was up even earlier watching Fox. At the same time, Trump's expressed his pleasure with the TV coverage he's gotten on guns, and he joked to a social gathering of reporters over the weekend, I like the chaos. He may like it or find it funny, but many Americans find the chaos more than just a little disturbing. Donald Trump was full of jokes at that reporter's dinner Saturday night, and in the midst of those jokes, he said North Korea had reached out for possible talks with the U.S. Quote, a couple of days ago, they said we would like to talk, and I said, so would we, but you have to denuke, you have to denuke, so let's see what happens. Maybe positive things are happening, said Trump, adding, I hope that's true. We'll be meeting and see if anything positive happens. Trump also said, I won't rule out direct talks with Kim Jong-un, I just won't. And, said Trump, as far as the risk of dealing with a madman is concerned, that's his problem, not mine. Trump was either saying that he too is a madman, or that the tension is between Kim and him, never mind the people of their respective nations. The White House hasn't said whether it was a joke or policy. Either way, the American people are not laughing. 82% of us see North Korea as the greatest critical threat to the United States, according to the latest annual Gallup poll of that question. 81% of us see cyber terrorism as a close second to North Korea. Worldwide terrorism is at third, with 75%, but more than 8 in 10 of us are spot on about the threat from North Korea. U.S. intelligence says North Korea now has a missile guidance system that allows it to hit specific targets. The North is still reportedly struggling with a missile that can re-enter the atmosphere intact, but that, we're told, is just a few months away. U.S. intelligence says North Korea made progress on its missile system during the recent Olympic Games in South Korea. But then this week, a ray of hope, or a ray of false hope, word that Kim Jong-un is willing to talk about denuclearization in direct talks with the United States. North Korea has signed agreements before only to violate them. It's made promises before only to break them. They did it with Clinton, they did it with both Bushes, and they did it with Obama. But this is the first time a North Korean leader's even put nukes on the table for discussion, and it may be from the increasingly tough sanctions on that starving but well-weaponed nation. The sanctions may have worked. This development may or may not put Americans' minds at ease, but we have certainly come a long way from last summer's fire and fury. Trump's friendship with the Chinese leader appears to have led to some envy. Chinese President Xi Jinping took power in 2012, and this week solidifies that by persuading the parliament to make him president for life. Quoting Trump at Saturday night's dinner, I think it's great. Maybe we'll give that a shot one day. The good news for Americans, and we could certainly use some, is that unemployment remains at an historically low 4.1 percent and that new unemployment claims have fallen to their lowest level in nearly 50 years. It was the first week of December 1969 when the numbers were in this range. Nearly two million Americans, meanwhile, are still living off unemployment checks and some of the jobs we have are teetering on the edge. And economists say the Obama effect is starting to fade now and that future economic news, including predicted inflation, is now on Trump. As mentioned earlier, Trump has announced tough new taxes or tariffs on steel and aluminum imported from other countries, 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum. In announcing the tariffs, Trump again took everyone by surprise, including Wall Street, with the Dow immediately dropped by more than 400 points. It surprised allies, including Germany, and not in a good way. It surprised the American companies that buy steel to make airplanes, cars, and washing machines. Whether domestic or imported, those companies will now pay more for the steel they use, and they'll be forced to raise prices and lay off workers so you will pay more and have fewer jobs. And it'll certainly be a surprise to beer and soda drinkers if the beer and soda companies have to pay more for can-making aluminum. The beer industry, which sells a hundred billion dollars worth a year, says it will have to lay off workers to keep prices competitive. The beer institute says Trump's ten percent tariff would amount to a tax on the beverage industry. American shoppers would be surprised at the effect of more expensive appliances. Candy lovers would pay more for Hershey kisses that are wrapped in aluminum foil. Trump announced the tariffs ostensibly to prop up a fading U.S. steel and aluminum industry but American workers specialize now more in making things out of steel than they do in making the metal. The beer industry is just one entity calling Trump's tariffs misguided, and it says American workers and consumers will suffer. And then there are those pesky international consequences. A Chinese official calls Trump's plan stupid and says it does nothing but help a few American steel companies. China now owns more than $1 trillion in U.S. debt and has the option of raising the interest rate for revenge. That could drive up interest rates here. China and our allies in Canada and the European Union say if Trump imposes those tariffs, they'll slap taxes on our exports of Levi blue jeans from California, Harley-Davidson motorcycles from Wisconsin, orange juice from Florida, cranberries from Maine, peanut butter from Georgia and Texas, tobacco from Virginia, and bourbon from Kentucky. The plan is to match Trump's tariffs penny for penny. As revenge. That's called a trade war, and although Trump says it's one we could win, it would more likely cost more jobs on farms and in factories as the United States loses billions in export dollars. But Trump's trying to deliver on a campaign promise to revive the American steel and aluminum industries, similar to the promise he made about coal. It is an interesting coincidence that former Trump advisor billionaire Carl Icahn managed to dump his investments in companies that use steel about a week before Trump announced these tariffs, about a week before those stocks tanked. Icahn resigned as an economic advisor to Trump after it became clear he was using his authority over government regulation to profit personally in the stock market. But Icon admits he stayed in touch with the White House since leaving that job, and that has the attention of the New York Attorney General's office. Trump's economic advisor Gary Cohn, meanwhile, has resigned because he disagrees with Trump, mainly on the tariffs. Gary Cohn was one of the very few people in the White House who has not been touched by scandal, and he's considered a stabilizing influence on an unstable administration. Cohen had threatened to quit after Trump equated neo-Nazis and white nationalists with the Americans who stood up with them and their tiki torches. But Cohen stayed to help craft the Trump publican vision of tax reform. The tariffs, however, were the last straw. And that marks the end of Trump's honeymoon with Wall Street. The Dow dropped 400 points in disapproval when Trump sprang his surprise announcement about tariffs and it dropped another 300 when it heard that Goldman Sachs alumnus Gary Cohn was leaving the White House. He was even considered as the replacement for Chief of Staff John Kelly when it appeared Kelly might be out the door, but now Cohn is gone. So the Trump turnover continues. Cohn is the 51st official to leave the White House since Trump took office And there's reason to believe that the man who replaced National Security Advisor Mike Flynn, H.R. McMaster, will be gone soon as well. The turnover rate is 43%, double that of any previous president. We know that both Defense Secretary Jim Mattis and Secretary of State Tillerson have also strongly objected to Trump's tariffs, both warning that those tariffs could endanger the U.S. national security relationship with its allies. To that end, Trump has now rolled back his all encompassing plan to exclude allies, including Canada, Mexico, and others, at least for a while. Although damage has already been done to international relations and our own stock market, Trump's tariffs may never become reality. This time, the Republicans in Congress are saying no. House Speaker Paul Ryan released a statement saying, we are extremely worried about the consequences of a trade war and are urging the White House not to advance with this plan. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell was urging caution. And then Ryan made it clear why this is so important to Republicans as they face a tough re-election battle this summer. The new tax reform law has boosted the economy, says Ryan, adding, and we certainly don't want to jeopardize these gains. To do so would hurt the Republicans even more, and yet their party's leader, Donald J. Trump, is threatening to make those congressional races even tougher. But Trump is a man with a mission determined to forge ahead. Trump did say Monday that he would back off the tariffs on Europe and Canada if they would renegotiate the North American Free Trade Agreement, also known as NAFTA. Trump says he'd impose the tariffs first and then lift them once he had a NAFTA deal he likes. But of course, all of this contradicts what Trump had said earlier on Twitter, that no country would get a pass on his metals tariffs. And it won't set well with the World Trade Organization, which demands that in all trade deals, all countries be treated equally, no exceptions. Trump says he's not backing down. Trump's Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, says the president could always change his mind. The president has until tomorrow to decide. We have also learned in this past week that the Government Securities and Exchange Commission has stopped investigating a bank that gave the Kushner family real estate business a loan for $180 million. Jared needs the cash. The bank, Apollo Global Management, needed out from under that investigation. The investigating stopped and Kushner got his loan after he had welcomed Apollo executives into the White House for meetings. Jared had similar White House meetings with representatives of Citigroup, which loaned him over $300 million. It is the first clear case of play for pay, an accusation the Trump campaign repeatedly leveled at Hillary Clinton. The best case for Kushner, says a government watchdog group, is that this looks absolutely terrible. Quoting a former White House ethics official, I'd never seen anybody come into government with as much debt exposure as Trump and Kushner. Until Monday of this week, only a very few of us had ever heard of Sam Nunberg. Until Monday, that was okay, since Nunberg had only worked for the Trump campaign for a few weeks and was fired. But Nunberg is also a protege of Trump supporter and political dirty trickster Roger Stone, and Nunberg agrees with Trump that the investigation is a witch hunt. Nunberg thinks campaign aide Carter Page colluded with Russians but not Trump or the Trump campaign. So Nunberg said he would not cooperate with that investigation and would not turn over any documents, but not because he and Trump are pals. Nunberg says Trump hates him and adds, Donald Trump caused this because he's an idiot. There is nobody who hates him more than me, end quote. Nunberg was included in that subpoena for documents aimed at Trump and nine others, and it seemed as though he had snapped. Nunberg spent all of Monday on cable news shows saying one shocking thing after another. On one hand, Nunberg just seemed nuts. On one channel, he threatened to rip up the subpoena from Bob Mueller on a different channel. At one point, he revived a 1990s rumor about, quote, Bill Clinton's illegitimate black child. And one interviewer claims to have smelled alcohol on Nunberg, but he denied he had been drinking. On the other hand, Nunberg said he'd concluded after being interviewed by Mueller's people that Mueller may, quote, have something on Trump. He praised the Mueller team as pros and said, I think he may have done something during the election, uh, but I don't know that for sure. They suspected something about him, said Nunberg. Nunberg says Mueller's team asked him about Trump's business dealings, especially the Miss Universe pageant in Russia in 2013. On CNN, Nunberg said Trump, quote, may very well have done something during the election with the Russians. Nunberg says he thinks Trump knew in advance about the Trump Tower meeting between Russians and Trump's son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager. Quoting Nunberg about Trump, he was talking about it a week before. I don't know why he went around trying to hide it. In a whirlwind tour of the cable news channels with one remarkable statement after another, Nunberg said he would not comply with Mueller's subpoena to turn over all his emails and other documents related to persons of interest in the Russia investigation. They want me to testify against Roger, said Nunberg. They want me to say Roger was going around telling people he was colluding with Julian Assange. Screw that, he said, as the world watched in amazement. As Nunberg's talk show tour continued, he told an interview, Let him arrest me. I'm not going in. I think it would be funny if they arrested me. Over the course of the day, cable news hosts and others tried to explain to Nunberg that his refusal would mean jail. He heard it from one interviewer to the next, three appearances on CNN, two on MSNBC, and several others, including a sit-down with the Washington Post. Eventually, Nunberg started asking on live television what the reporters thought might happen to him because of his refusal. But also, from one news channel to another, Nunberg carried his jaw-dropping message, I'm not cooperating. Arrest me. You want to arrest me? Arrest me. This whole thing is a witch hunt, he grumbled. But as the day wore on, as the interviewers kept asking Nunberg if he knew he was risking jail by defying a federal criminal subpoena, reality may have begun to sink in. By the end of the day, Nunberg was saying that, on second thought, maybe he would cooperate with the subpoena after all. By the end of the day, he said, maybe I'll just give him my email password. On the morning after, he announced that he would cooperate and that he was beginning alcohol rehabilitation. And through all of what you have just heard, Trump continued to deny any collusion with Russia, and he says his Russia troubles are all Obama's fault. In another tweet, Trump wrote, why did the Obama administration start an investigation into the Trump campaign with zero proof of wrongdoing long before the election? Wanted to discredit so Crooked H would win, bigger than Watergate. Plus, Trump continued, Obama did nothing about Russian meddling. But Trump's the president now. What's he doing about Russian meddling? Nothing, as you have just heard. Sure, he said this week he's not worried about Russian meddling in this year's midterms because he says, we'll counteract whatever they do. With what? Counteractors in the State Department who don't speak Russian? No money, turning down money to counteract Russia? No orders to our intelligence agencies to stop and or retaliate for Russian interference? A lot of things would have to change for the U.S. to significantly counteract the Russian attack. And as pointed out in that Jane Mayer article, Obama did not know the FBI was looking into Trump's ties with Russia, not until January of 2017, when the two administrations were already deep into their transition of power. Before leaving office, Obama hit Russia with new sanctions, kicked out three dozen Russian diplomats, and shut down two Russian compounds in the U.S., Obama had hesitated to do anything before hearing from the FBI because he didn't know the extent of all this and reportedly because he didn't want to be seen as trying to influence the election if only we had known. And the scandals continued to roll in. Yet another member of the Trump administration has been found in violation of the Hatch Act, which bans mixing politics with official government business. This time, it's Kellyanne Conway, whose duties at the White House remain unclear even as taxpayers cover her salary. Conway was cited for using her White House platform to promote the candidacy of Republican Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore. Moore lost that race because of allegations of improper sexual behavior with teenaged girls. He's now publicly begging for money to cover his legal fees. And Ben Carson is still the Secretary of Housing, but he is now under investigation for alleged excessive spending. Carson has now sent back the $31,000 dining room set he had ordered for the office where he oversees housing the poor. The NRA loses its grip. Kids for governor, hope for teachers, and more after this. Just a quick reminder here to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking that Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a little commission from Amazon when you do, so it's very important that you shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use Amazon for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button right there on that same page. Thank you. Bob Seska is still getting settled into his new digs in the nation's capital. Hopefully he'll be back next week and I will rejoin him on his show Tuesday right here on the Realm Network. If you're under 21 you can no longer get guns at Kroger. In other news up until this week an 18 or 19 or 20 year old could buy a gun at a grocery store. The Fred Meyer chain sells guns in Alaska, Idaho, Oregon and Washington and those stores are owned by Kroger which has ordered the gun sales to stop for people under 21. Kroger had already put a stop to its sale of assault-style rifles. In other news, you also used to be able to buy an assault rifle at the supermarket, so long as you were 18. Kroger allowed assault rifle sales to continue in Bear Country in its Alaskan stores, but it's now stopping those sales in Alaska as well. Kroger made the announcement just after last week's buzzcast, and just one day, after the gun-buying age was also raised to 21 at Walmart, Dick's Sporting Goods, and L.L. Bean. REI cut back on its gun line. These changes came after a 19-year-old used an assault rifle to kill 17 students and teachers at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, on Valentine's Day. He did not purchase that gun at Dick's, but he had bought an assault rifle there. The Kroger story is especially striking, though, because Just knowing that a grocery store has sold assault rifles and sold guns to people under the age of 21 tells us a lot about America's gun culture. Kroger did so because it could. The law allowed it. Laws many Americans now believe exist because of the National Rifle Association. Kroger still sells guns, but it's cutting back as it sees Americans rising up about these NRA-backed laws. Many Americans can buy a gun in under an hour while it takes months in Australia, Austria, Britain, Brazil, Canada, Germany, India, Israel, Japan, Mexico, and certainly in China and Russia. In Japan, you'd have to go through 13 steps to get a gun. For many in the United States, it's two steps. And buying the gun is the second step. The first is the instant background check. The laws are tougher in some states, but know also that about a third of American gun owners buy guns without a background check because they don't need one when buying through a private seller. It's an NRA thing. After the closing bell at a high school in Alabama yesterday, two students were victims of an apparently accidental shooting. A 17-year-old girl was killed and a 17-year-old boy was seriously injured. The school was locked down until the gun was recovered. The girl who had died had just been accepted into college. On the same day Kroger made its announcement, a boy in Ohio shot himself with a run-of-the-mill mill 22 caliber rifle in a middle school restroom. Afterward, police found in the boy's phone his plan to kill some of his fellow students. This will be bigger than anything this country's seen, he wrote, adding, I will not be forgotten. I'll be a stain in American history. It's going to be so much fun. They won't suspect a thing. He said this wasn't his parents' fault, that it's just the way he and other mass school shooters see the world, and he praised the school shooters who had come before him. He wrote all of this on the same day as the Florida school shooting. He had taken the gun from his mother's house and carried it with him, 80 rounds of ammunition. Police also found bomb-making materials. I'd hurt and destroy something bigger, wrote 7th grader Keith Simons, but my school's an easy target. USA Today reports there have been more than 600 copycat threats against schools since the Florida shooting three weeks ago. And these days, these aren't your grandfather's gunshot wounds. With historically new guns and new ammunition, the wounds have gotten much, much worse. Among the people who don't die from their gun wounds, the severity of the wounds they got has increased in recent years. It's gotten much, much harder for doctors to sew gunshot victims back together because the ripping of flesh is much worse than it used to be. With 70% of gunshot victims not dying, emergency rooms and hospitals are overwhelmed. A new study by the School of Medicine at Boston University has revealed other interesting figures. Thanks to that study of nearly 700,000 gunshot victims, we know that 88% were adult men and that 6% were children. Four out of five were younger adults between 16 and 45. About 25 percent of all the shootings are accidental. About nine percent are intentionally self-inflicted. The study deserves our attention because there have been so few studies of guns. Republicans refusing to acknowledge it for the huge public health program that guns present because the NRA opposes gun research. In Australia, people voluntarily and anonymously turned 2,500 fully automatic or semi-automatic guns over to their government. In an amnesty collection late last year, Australians voluntarily turned over 2,900 handguns and a rocket launcher. The Australian government began this amnesty program after its last mass shooting back in 1996. It's for turning in, without punishment, unregistered guns. Possession of an unregistered gun, down under, can mean 14 years in prison and a fine of nearly $300,000. In the amnesties since those 35 Australians died, the government has collected more than 51,000 guns. About a third of the weapons have been destroyed. The rest were properly registered and either returned to their actual owners or given to a licensed dealer to be sold legally. Quoting Australia's law enforcement minister, taking these unregistered firearms off the streets means they will not fall into the hands of criminals. With still well over 200,000 unregistered guns from Brisbane to the Outback, Australian officials say they may be having more amnesties since the ones they've had so far have worked so well. Tougher gun laws do work. According to a new study from Cornell Medical Center in New York, more rare and valuable research revealing things we did not know. The study found that more than half the suicides and about two-thirds of the homicides involved guns. And the study found that states with tough gun laws have lower overall rates of gun-related murders and suicides. Cornell studied this county by county. Their study also found that states with tough gun laws can actually help an entire region because of the effects those laws have on people along the borders of all the neighboring states. Counties that border a state with stringent gun laws had only a 20% higher murder rate than the counties just over the state line. But counties deep in the heart of a state with loose gun laws had a murder rate that was 40% higher than the state next door. Cornell Medical found that states with weak gun laws had suicide rates that were as much as 43% higher than states with strong gun laws. With the nation's discussion of guns at a fever pitch, Congress has gone straight to work on banking laws. Specifically Republicans and Democrats want to roll back some of the regulations placed on banks after banks squirreled the nation's entire economy back in 2007. They argue that those regulations hurt small banks and the nation's economy, but Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren argues that stripping rules from the Dodd-Frank Act would again give license to big Wall Street banks to again pillage the U.S. economy. But that's another story. In the meantime, they're not talking about guns because they haven't settled on a bill that could make it through the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. We'd love to at some point, said Senate Leader Mitch McConnell, but not now, he said, to the disappointment of millions of Americans. In reality, there's already bipartisan agreement on a bill that would pass overwhelmingly and fix the nation's broken instant background system, but it won't be voted on just yet. The nation's leader, meanwhile, vacillated on guns, just as he has on immigration and other issues. Trump had shocked everyone by questioning why there isn't a 21 age limit on gun purchases and why anyone would need a military-style assault rifle. And Trump called for background checks for all gun buyers, including those who buy from private dealers. But after appearing to challenge the NRA and Republicans with those remarks, Trump met with officials from the NRA and tweeted, it was a great meeting. The NRA used more words than that after the meeting, saying that Trump supports the Second Amendment and does not want gun control. The NRA did not say whether it had reminded Trump of the $30 million donation it had made to his campaign. A teacher, armed with a handgun, has been arrested after barricading himself in his classroom and firing at least one shot through a window. The school in Dalton, Georgia, went into lockdown. No one got hurt, but students and other teachers were terrified. The standoff lasted an hour and a half before the teacher surrendered and came out of his room. Police then peacefully took him into custody. Mr. Davidson was described as a very good teacher over the past 14 years, But according to the principal who tried to stop this, 53-year-old Jesse Davidson was making quote, some nonsensical noises. For Americans who heard this story, it weakened even further the argument that teachers should be armed with guns. But this did not stop the Florida lawmakers from days later voting to let some faculty members carry guns. The so-called school marshal program would allow the principals, counselors, the ROTC instructors, and even the janitor and the librarian to be armed if they meet the requirements. They would be deputized, kind of a principal's posse. Those requirements include psychological screening, a physical fitness test, and 132 hours of gun safety and proficiency training. They'd also have to complete 12 hours of diversity training in case a gun-toting faculty member had ill feelings about a minority or two. And there would be a loophole that would let some teachers pack heat if they are currently serving or have served in the U.S. Armed Forces. But the bill passed by the Florida legislature does some remarkable things, especially for Florida, where the NRA is firmly ensconced. The gun lobby lost part of its grip on the Sunshine State after the massacre in Parkland. The NRA demanded no votes, demanded no votes on those waiting periods, the age limit, and the bump stock ban. The gun group lost on every count. Republicans compromised with Democrats on at least doing something, and that's also rare neither of those things would normally happen but this time was different altogether it's a seismic shift for a state that has not budged on guns in decades until now it raises the gun buying age to 21 expands the three-day waiting period for handguns to include all rifles and shotguns as well something florida has avoided for 22 years it allows bump stocks purchase and sale and it spends millions of dollars on mental health and school safety programs It did not ban assault weapons, though, and it did not create a gun registry or let cities and counties pass their own tougher gun laws. The Florida bill does not require background checks for out-of-state gun purchases, and it does not stop the sale and transfer of large-capacity magazines, and they did not pass a tax on ammunition. Those were all Democratic amendments that were rejected by the Republican majority. Despite the amazing-for-Florida progress here, some things haven't changed. Darker forces seem to be at work in Georgia, where the Republican lawmakers there ripped a tax break away from Delta Airlines for dropping its NRA discount. The tax break would have saved Delta, which is based in Atlanta, $50 million a year in fuel taxes. The state's Republican governor is expected to sign the bill, but against his better judgment, he's signing it because his veto would likely be overridden by his fellow Republicans who are right now more focused On protecting the NRA than on protecting the citizens. The governor thinks that this bill on Delta is bad for business. Delta is Georgia's biggest employer. Quoting Governor Nathan Deal, ours is a welcoming state, the epitome of southern hospitality. We were not elected, he said, to give the late night talk show host fodder or to act with the type of immaturity that's caused so many to have a cynical view of politics. Delta has responded by saying that it will not back down from its decision to end its one-use-only discount for NRA members. And the movement of high school students pushing for better gun laws and enforcement, the students behind the boycotts and the marches and the TV appearances, their work continues. Last night, eight young people were arrested as police broke up a huge sit-in outside the office of Senate Leader Mitch McConnell. In Kansas, as you may have heard months ago, Six teenagers are running for governor. The law says they can in Kansas, or at least it doesn't say they can't. Now, this was funny at first, and then the Florida school shooting happened, and people have mostly stopped laughing at these six teenage boys. Quoting 17-year-old gubernatorial candidate Tyler Ruzik, I've always thought of myself as more moderate, almost an Eisenhower Democrat, He opposes the tax cut by former Governor Sam Brownback, who threw the state into chaos with tax cuts that didn't trickle down, cut education, and shut down many state social programs. Tyler was wearing a light blue Ruzik for Governor t-shirt when he said all this. And he's just one of the six young candidates, several of whom have been interviewed on national cable news shows. Wichita produced a Democrat and a Libertarian. Kansas City offers up two Republicans. There's even a Green Party candidate, although it's not clear if he's still in the running. It is the Green Party. Quoting Tyler, did the founding fathers consider that a 17-year-old might be governor? I don't know. Did they consider that a reality television businessman would become president of the United States after losing the popular vote? Probably not. This is a kid talking. Or is he? On the day of the shooting, Tyler was on his way to Washington, D.C. for a TV appearance when he got news updates on his phone about what had happened in Florida. And then he went on to CNN and ripped into the NRA. And with that, the boy candidates for governor were no longer just an amusing thing. Tyler admits he doesn't have much chance of actually becoming governor, but he says he turns 18 this summer and that he's looking forward to registering to vote. The primary election season opened Tuesday of this week in the run-up to the congressional midterm elections in November, and there's an historical reason to believe there will be a blue wave. Since the Civil War, the party in the White House loses an average of 40 congressional seats in the midterms when the president's approval rating is below 50 percent. Trump's approval is in the upper 30s. Democrats need 24 seats to retake the House. In the Senate, they need just two. Democrats didn't do a lot of flipping in this week's first congressional primaries, but they did turn out to vote in much bigger numbers than usual. In the Texas primaries they chose two Latinas to run for Congress this fall and this year is expected to be a big year for Democratic female candidates. Democrats have been flipping seats across the country in state legislatures and special elections. About three dozen state legislatures have already flipped from red to blue. The blue wave has already begun. Quoting an SMU poli-sci professor, it's one word, enthusiasm. Democrats do, by the way, have more to talk about than just Russia. Democrats in the Senate have unveiled a trillion dollar infrastructure plan of their own that would be paid for by cutting the tax breaks for the wealthy that are contained in the Trump-Publican tax plan. Oklahoma has the lowest paid teachers in the country and they haven't had a raise in 10 years and inspired by the success of underpaid teachers in West Virginia, Oklahoma teachers are considering going on strike next month. Teachers in Kentucky may also follow suit. Underpaid teachers everywhere found hope in the success of the West Virginia teacher strike, the longest wildcat strike in that state's history, which left classrooms empty for nine school days. All three of the state teachers union supported the strike across all 55 of West Virginia's counties. State officials say they could not afford the 5% raise the teachers were demanding, and they're now cutting other state programs to pay for it since it also includes raises for all state employees. But the cutbacks might not be needed, really, since states are raking in more money these days in this booming jobs market. The teachers' West Virginia victory is likely to inspire more teacher strikes. It is certainly a morale booster. But it's also a win for labor unions at a time their influence is being eroded by big business. The Trump administration is suing California in its harshest attack yet on that state for not cooperating with Trump's immigration policies. The lawsuit accuses the state of interfering with federal law enforcement by not asking about the immigration status of people they encounter. California has laws that ban police from asking that question and restrict local police cooperation with federal immigration authorities on some matters. Police are mostly okay with that, saying the fear among immigrants that's been created by Trump has made their job of enforcing the law and keeping the peace even harder. It is the second swing at California in the past week by the Trump administration. This punch came from Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Last week, it was federal immigration authorities arresting over 230 people in California, half of whom had no criminal records. While Republicans have for decades championed states' rights... Trump's Justice Department is citing a constitutional supremacy clause that says federal law supersedes state laws. California Governor Jerry Brown responded by saying Sessions was, quote, basically going to war against the state of California, and he called the Trump administration full of liars. That administration is now expected to file similar lawsuits against two other states. Stay tuned. At long last, the usual fun stuff and more in the third and final segment up next i cannot count the number of mornings i've awakened on a pillow that was so sweaty i had to throw it in the dryer before making the bed or the restless nights i spent flipping and reshaping to get cool and dry these days i wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow because now i sleep on a hollow pillow the hollow pillow stays cool while giving my head neck and shoulders perfect support all night long night after night Now, a lot of us have spent good money on good mattresses, but still haven't found the right pillow. Fiber fills are hot and humid. They collapse under your weight and they don't give you the full night support you need for good posture and good sleep. And you have to keep replacing them. A memory foam pillow gives support, but maybe not quite the shape that's right for you. It doesn't breathe. So it gets hot and gives off chemical gases. You probably shouldn't spend a third of your life inhaling. Hullo pillows are filled with natural buckwheat hulls that are eco-friendly and don't give off gases and don't collapse. The buckwheat's grown and milled by American farmers before the hulls go into Hullo's pre-shrunken certified organic unbleached cotton twill casing. All of it right here in the U.S. Hollow pillows breathe and stay cool, and most importantly, conform perfectly to your head, neck, and shoulders for a truly restful night's sleep. And you can adjust the fullness of the hollow pillow by removing or adding more holes through the zippered that's covered for comfort. I'm so happy with mine, I'm proud to give it my personal endorsement, and proud that a percentage of the profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. Hello pillows are available in 3 sizes: small, standard, and king. And right now, depending on the size, you can save up to 20 bucks on each additional pillow with fast free shipping. But you can only get this deal by going to hollowpillow.com/bbnc. That's hollowpillow.com/bbnc. Say hello to a healthy and restful night's sleep and wake up as cool as the other side of the pillow. Thank you for supporting this brilliant company and this show at hollowpillowcom slash bbnc. In another rebuke of the Trump administration, the state of Washington has become the first state to require net neutrality. Trump's FCC had ripped away that fairness rule, but within the borders of Washington state and other states to follow, internet service providers like Comcast are not allowed to block legal content, nor are they allowed to slow down speeds for websites that don't pay as much for their internet connections. Trump's policy would let them do precisely that in states that don't follow in the footsteps of Washington state and several states red and blue are already working to require net neutrality inside their borders. Governors in Montana and New Jersey have already signed executive orders restoring the net neutrality that the Trump administration has tried to take away. Equifax has once again confessed... That it failed to protect the confidential information of even more Americans. Equifax has updated the number of people affected by its security breach to nearly 148 million. That is about half the population of the United States. Their names, addresses, social security numbers, and birth dates exposed to hackers. And it's been another tough week for Uber. First, a report that Uber and Lyft drivers average. an hour, according to a study at MIT. 75% of them earn less than their state's minimum wages. Nearly a third of drivers say they're losing money. In more possible bad news for its drivers, Uber unveiled its new self-driving freight trucks that it hopes to have on the roads of Arizona soon. And Uber is now being sued by Pennsylvania for its handling of uh, its own massive data breach two years ago. Lawmakers in Oklahoma, Utah, West Virginia, and Vermont are looking to fight the rapidly rising prices on prescription drugs. They're looking at importing their citizens' prescriptions from Canada. Quoting a Vermont senator, people are making choices between food and prescription drugs. We can't allow that to continue. Pharmaceutical companies say we can, and they back it up with money and lobbying in Washington. After saying it would and then saying it wouldn't, the Trump administration has quietly moved to allow trophy hunters to bring to the U.S. tusks and other body parts from elephants. Under Trump, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has authorized these items on what it calls a case-by-case basis. Elephants have been on the endangered species list since 1979. Despite the excellent movies and actors that were nominated, Oscar viewership dropped like a rock this year. In a setback for ABC, a record low 26 million people watched. That's a sharp 20% drop from last year. It's a little over half the number of viewers from just four years ago. And even though the Motion Picture Academy members kept their political opinions reserved, the public may have stayed away because of the comments made on award shows since Trump was elected. In the celebrations after the ceremony, a repeat party crasher swiped the best actress statue won by Frances McDormand, but police recovered both the Oscar and the alleged thief. The Weinstein Company declared dead and gone here last week, may walk the earth again, but under a different name. It appeared the deal to sell the company to a new group of female investors was off after the New York Attorney General filed a lawsuit saying no one should profit from Harvey Weinstein's sinister sex scams. But all sides have now met with New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who has agreed to back off that lawsuit after some negotiated conditions, including a fund for the victims of $90 million. Disney's Black Panther remained king of the movie Hill this week with yet another $66 million, bringing its total to over a half billion in the U.S. and Canada and nearly a billion worldwide. Panther's extended success handed Jennifer Lawrence her third week opening in a row. Her Red Sparrow opened in second place with only $17 million. For previews, theaters, showtimes, and tickets, please use my Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. David Ogden Stiers was in a slew of movies and performed on stage, but was best known for his role as Winchester on TV's MASH. David Ogden Stiers died this week from cancer at age 75. Rhode Island is looking to slap a tax on porn. Lawmakers in Rhode Island have introduced a bill that would block porn and then unblock it for those who want it for 20 bucks one time. To get the porn waiver, you'd have to prove you're 18 and check the box that says you've read the warning about the computer security dangers of venturing into porn. The money collected by the state would be used to fight human trafficking. Booze news. Indiana is allowing the sale of alcoholic beverages on Sundays for the first time since Prohibition. The people who sell spirits are ecstatic. A chain called Big Red Liquors is offering a 25% discount for Sunday customers on all beer, wine, and the hard stuff. You still cannot buy booze on Sundays in 10 red states and Minnesota. Do things go better with booze? Coca-Cola is venturing into the alcoholic beverage market, at least in Japan. Chuhi doesn't have a lot of alcohol in it. It's being called Alka-pop, Coke calls it an experiment that it says is not likely to spread to this continent anytime soon. Oh, and one more thing about Uber, but amusing, 21-year-old Kenny Bachman had been partying with high school friends in Morgantown, West Virginia, Friday night. In his stupor, he had asked an Uber driver to take him home to Gloucester County, New Jersey. He awoke in a Toyota Sienna minivan and asked what was happening. The driver informed him they were about two-thirds of the way to New Jersey. Now, stopping the ride or returning to West Virginia made no sense at that point in the light of day. And because he had requested a big vehicle and because he had requested the ride during surge pricing, the bill came to $1,635.93. Kenny paid the driver after they stopped at a CVS cash machine near his house. Passengers on a United Flight 3833 from Charlottesville, Virginia to Washington's Dulles Airport might have willingly paid more for less turbulence. The plane landed safely after a very bumpy descent in rough weather. Very rough, very bumpy. No one was hurt, but quoting the pilot, pretty much everyone on the plane threw up. Apropos of nothing, an artist at the home office in Florida has filed with the Guinness Book of World Records to include him for having and wearing the world's tallest hat. To call this a stovepipe hat is an understatement. It towers 18 feet 9 inches into the air. It'll be on display at Ella's Folk Art Cafe in Tampa, in case you're in the area. And finally, this never would have happened in Wisconsin. They have concluded their big annual cheese festival in England. It was last weekend. It didn't go well. Oh, sure, there was music and adult beverages and live comedy. The one thing they ran out of, though, at this year's Cheese Festival in England is cheese. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comments.